I'd been encouraged by a professor who said, look, I don't think this is a good business, but you should throw this out on Kickstarter so it can fail. I came back to London, threw it online, and it sold out in four days. I remember on the one hand being excited and on the other hand being incredibly nervous. You know, you now have to go do this thing. Tim Brown, ex-professional New Zealand footballer turned American shoemaker entrepreneur. An interesting combination that I'm sure will be an exciting topic for today's podcast. A successful football career for both club, including 100 appearances for Wellington Phoenix. Go Phoenix! and uh, country, which is 30 appearances. An injury caused a career turning point, meaning Tim looked outside the sporting world at a business future. The first step was obtaining a master's from LSC, followed by a partnership with Joey's Willinger. The result? A sustainable tech and science-led footwear that has a huge A-list Hollywood following, as well as creating waves in the funding community as a direct-to-consumer brand. I'm here to delve deeper into this exciting brand as it launches its first UK shop within Covent Garden and an online UK store. We're recording this today in Tim's basement. Welcome to your own basement, Tim. Thank you for having me. It's quite nice. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's a little less echoey than most other basements I'm, uh, I'm used to. That makes it sound like I spend a lot of time in basements. Maybe we should move on. Your interview. <laughs> my, my, my choice of how we want this to go. Great. Okay, let's break the proverbial ice with some fire or quick fire questions, if we will. So, San Francisco or Wellington? Oh, it's got to be Wellington. Good man. I would, I'd say Wellington. Wellington's pretty cool. That's home. Uh, it's where I grew up. Mum and dad are there. No, it's got to be that. Fair enough. Well, one day you can bring them over to San Francisco if they, if they, they won't want to, will they? No, fine. <laughs> Next question it is. Runners, loungers or skippers? Oh, it has to be the runner. That was our first product. We launched with just one shoe and, and sold that for the first 14 months. So I'll, I'll go with that one. It's been good to us. And that's what I'm wearing, correct? Correct. Yeah. Excellent. Just and thank you. Have the right style. Yeah, you're welcome. This podcast episode is sponsored by me. <laughs> um, sportsman or businessman? Gosh, sport was good to me, but the business uh, has been maybe the bigger challenge. So I'll take that one. Said like a classic uh, overachiever. Favorite Hollywood supporter? Ed O'Neill, in the very, very early days, was the star of Married with Children, if you're old enough to remember that. And he was a shoe salesman in that show, now stars in Modern Family, and organically found the product and bought them all for the cast of of his show. And uh, it was weird and wonderful. And I like that one. Okay. You've obviously got a lot of loyalty to the firsts. Yes, but can I do one more? Please. So uh, my mum rang me up and said, look, you've made it. The New Zealand Prime Minister met the Australian Prime Minister for the first time, Jacinda Ardern. She is awesome. She's awesome. So she's 37. She had a baby in office, one of the very few times that's ever happened. And she gifted the uh, Australian Prime Minister a, a pair of all birds and... The great thing was you already had a pair. Oh, that's they, awesome. So mum, mum called me up and she's like, you've made it. doesn't matter what happens from here on in. You've made it. So that, that was very true. It was a good one. That's amazing. So you're selling in Australia. We are online in Australia. Started in America and New Zealand, added uh, Australia, Canada, and this is our fifth country here in the UK. Amazing. Well, thank you for uh, gracing us with your presence. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be in my own basement with you. So uh, black trainers or white trainers? Black. Okay, but neither today. I'd say that's black. Yeah? That's a little bit of a bad light in here, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's black. So, sort of. Okay, yeah, fine. Just off black. All right. Well, ne- never take uh, colour advice from someone who actually identifies <laughs> as colour blind. So let's move on. Um, I hope you enjoy my red trainers. So uh, now that we're friends, we can move on to the more important questions. So Allbirds, big direct-to-consumer business launching in London and online to the whole of the UK. So tell us something we might not know about the sustainable brand. That, uh, you know, before it launched, in some ways its birthplace was here in London for three years. I came here for grad school after I finished playing and spent three years running around here, 
not quite sure how to make this work, quite honestly. I like to sort of say this is where it was a bad idea before it became a good one in San Francisco. So there's something quite special personally to be able to come back now and do this properly and launch a store in Covent Garden and see a bunch of my mates here that patted me on the head in the early days and, and wished me well to see it sort of starting to work. Let's dive straight into the feeling of trying to start a company like this in London as you were. And I, I know like necessarily you weren't trying to start it, so to speak, as much as you know, part of the business school process where you have to. But what was it like? I mean, can you take us through a bit of a journey emotionally of the English scene and the support or lack of, we have no idea, in that period, and then compare it to what it was like going somewhere like San Francisco? Absolutely. And, and it's a good question. And I think it's an important one. And, you know, as someone who was born in England, grew up in New Zealand, now lives in San Francisco, I've kind of got a foot in a few different camps, so I can answer this sort of reasonably objectively. And you've got shoes to cover every foot. <laughs> there we go. There we go. The, the shoe puns. They've started early and they'll carry right through this interview. They're there for the rest of your life, sadly. Yeah, it's I the know. life you chose. Yeah, well, the combination of wool and sheep. Uh, shoes and, being and a sheep. footballer. Exactly. There we go. I sort of like to think, uh, you know, have an idea or a business idea. England gives you, you know, sort of 100 reasons why it's a bad one. And maybe New Zealand's sort of 50. Australia's sort of maybe neutral, somewhere in the middle. And then you go to America and it's 100 reasons why it's good. I feel like the same business transported to San Francisco and it was full of hope and possibility. Whereas uh, when it was here in London, it was full of doubt. And so I think the cultural lens applied to new ideas and businesses is quite significant, or it was for me at least. But do you think that that has anything to do with the timing? You know, when you were here, it was in its very nascent stages, you were going through a business school program, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, you're like, actually, it's irrelevant, because if you'd have done the business school program there, everyone has said, just go for it. I think it's a sense of possibility. I think it's an attitude around failure of being able to see beyond where something is at to where it could be. And then probably it comes down to sort of some of the structural aspects of access to funding and the infrastructure to build a business that, you know, certainly feels like in San Francisco is the best place in the world to do that. And look, to your point, not to say that the idea was ready to go in any way while I was here, but certainly it's been noticeable attitude to entrepreneurship generally in San Francisco than here. Why build the world's most comfortable shoes other than having to spend a career in the world's least comfortable shoes? Uh, you know, it's a funny one. You know, I ask myself that question sometimes. I didn't grow up on a sheep farm. I didn't grow up dreaming of one day starting a Are football Are you trying brand. to break a cultural stereotype? <laughs> I'll keep trying. It's unsuccessfully. But the idea of starting a business was interesting. When I was playing football professionally, I had a lot of time on my hands. And this was sort of one way to fill that. And it was really interesting. And the whole business that was to become Allbirds really started as a curiosity project to be quite honest. So you started it whilst you were still playing? While I was still playing. And it was based on you know a singular insight that's still quite foundational for Allbirds, which was the footwear category was overcrowded, overdesigned, overlogoed, and uh, it was very, very hard to find simple. It's amazing to hear someone who has the insight of something that's overcrowded, so they bring something into the market and actually make that insight work. Yeah, it was more instinctive than sort of analytical at the time. But I think the assumption sometimes with innovation, as I've thought about this over years, is that you add stuff. And sometimes it can be taking things away. You know, in, in, in the case of footwear, it was just, it was very, very hard to find simple, almost impossible. And the examples of the products that were simple, I didn't think were particularly good. So, you know, I found a, a footwear factory on Google, which I don't recommend you do if you're trying to build a business, and really sort of stumbled into this footwear category that I knew nothing about and found, you know, something was incredibly antiquated, hadn't changed for 100 years, had a, a prevailing low-cost mentality, and saw opportunities for making shoes out of different things. 
So the science and technology behind the brand took time to develop. The shoes being made with natural fibers such as merino wool, eucalyptus, eucalyptus trees, even castor oil, etc. Was that a moving target? Did it start off with that? So How does jo- that work? Jo- Joey had, you know, you know, engineer MBA had committed his career to sustainable materials and sustainability more broadly, and I think was able to really he was the source of the purpose in what we were doing. I think he was able to uncover the real North Star of the opportunity here, which as great as the product was becoming in wool and as great as the footwear space was from a business opportunity point of view, this actually was was about a revolution in sustainable manufacturing that he firmly believed was about to happen, that needed to happen. And the fashion industry was was a real area of concern environmentally and there was a big opportunity for businesses to show leadership. So I sort of think that was the moment when it didn't get easier, but we sort of found we found our why really for the brand and for me personally. What, what was your why when you first started? You take us back to, you know, you were sitting around as a footballer, you had too much time. Like, did you have a why that was just any more than, well, I'm actually very creative and I've got time? And it was, there's a consumer problem that's maybe no one else's, just my own. Let's go solve it. Right. And, you know, quite honestly, that was really interesting and fun for a little while, but it wasn't enough. And, you know, at some point you realize you're selling something and you're not quite sure why you're doing it. And it was really difficult. There has to be a larger reason what, over and above just the transaction to do something really well. That's been my experience, whether it be in football you know, or anything else. So I think with Joey's partnership, we found that and it was very important. So building a sustainable fashion brand um, obviously demonstrates a desire to change the world, like you say, beyond just the bottom line. And you've registered as a B Corps as well. So what was that process like? Can you explain what a B Corps is for anyone that doesn't know? If it's a difficult process, I understand it is, um, sure. but explain it to us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and just importantly, I, I don't think we set out to build either a sustainable brand or a fashion brand. I think we set out to build a brand that made great products that at its core had sustainability as a non-negotiable. And I certainly, I think we're in the style space, but one of the insights was that we weren't designing for fashion and we weren't designing for performance. We were designing for casual wear. And I know, I know that's I think you're designing for comfort. Yeah, and the, there's a nuance to that because I think the footwear category is such an enormous one. Everyone sort of says, well, there's a couple of great brands. Why bother? It's so crowded. But actually when you unpackage this enormous space that makes 20 billion pairs of shoes a year, there's a range of opportunities and it's also you know, full of entrenched behavior that we felt you know, we could do differently and better. But to answer your question, a B Corp allowed us to structure the business with the environment and actually as part of the, the governance of the business where the environment was one of the stakeholders. You know, so structurally that was important. Um, and then also we were able to get a B Corp certification, which is a two-year deep dive into your business that anyone can apply for, any type of business, whether it be a corner shop or an advertising agency or a retail brand, to certify how they were behaving, score you out of 200. It's been really, really important for us, as have certifications across all the materials we use in terms of trying to do the right thing as as much as we possibly can. So just to clarify, at what point did you decide you were setting up as a B Corps? And did you have to change the product? Did you have to adapt anything to go along that? Because as I understand it, You've taken lots of feedback from your customers. Your wool runners have had nearly 30 iterative tweaks to get to the point where they're at. Does the vibe of getting a B Corps certificate as well just feed into that? No, not at all. That, that was something that we committed to right at the beginning in the foundational documents of the business. And we went out to raise um, some money in the early days and didn't have an investor bat an eyelid about that. It's becoming uh, the new norm, I think, in business, certainly in the States. And I think it's been a little bit slower to come here to the UK. And I, it's a really important thing that if you don't know about, you should look into. I think in, in many ways, it's the future of business. But we launched the uh, Allbirds 
on the 1st of March 2016 and we sold one shoe. And traditionally in footwear, that's not how it works. You have a, a range seasonally. You change it all the time. So we had one shoe. And part of the thinking – What color was it? There was four colors okay. at launch. And, uh, you know, what people miss in the direct-to-consumer narrative, I think, is the feedback loop. And it's sort of what I would consider our competitive advantage as a business and the ability to sort of take the product and iterate. And we made, you know, I think 27 changes to the Wool Runner um, since we launched based, you know, with more of a kind of a software technology mindset than a traditional footwear one in terms of how we were listening, iterating and improving. Having been to your San Francisco store just two weeks ago, it's this lovely little store in a lovely little side street in San Francisco. It's all very beautiful, whatever. But here you're sitting in a giant prime location, massive store. And what I'm wondering is, is the San Francisco store still more expensive than this prime real estate Covent Garden one? You know, I think we moved into our first office space in San Francisco and there was a lot of tension with the tech community in in that city. And and in the particular neighborhood that we're in, they were finding the tech communities were coming into this traditional retail district, putting in offices where there used to be shops graying out the windows. So they put an ordinance in place that basically said you can have office space here, but you have to have retail. So we got what was a relatively good deal and found ourselves a retailer much, much sooner than we thought right below our office. And it ended up being one of the best things that sort of happened to us. It's, it's just fascinating because being someone who obviously lives in London, it's so well reputed to be the, one of the most expensive cities in the world. But actually, it doesn't feel like that when you're in San Francisco. It feels there's an exponential difference over there, which is crazy. Oh, but that's absolutely true. I mean, it was blew us away when we went over there, having kind of come from London and you, th- you sort of think you're... And you're, New Zealand you're, even. It can't get worse and then, and then it does. It's an amazing city and it's one going through enormous amounts of change with this sort of uh, influx of wealth. It certainly feels, for me at least, the centre of the world a little bit at the moment and, and a really fun place to be. Do you have any thoughts on um, on launching a store in the UK during Brexit? You know, I've been asked, asked that quite a lot. I think the short answer is we were coming here irregardless. The uncertainty is really unhelpful, I think, and probably as much for the people that live here than anything else. So... I mean, I, I just hope it's sort of resolved, you know, as soon as possible. But look, coming from the States, there's uncertainty there in terms of tariffs and all sorts of things. So, you know, this is not unique to the UK. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. 
So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Okay, so um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your um, your, your journey, going back to uh, old school Tim. What was more of a proud moment? You captained your national team the only time they made it to the World Cup, if I have read my research correctly. Yeah, I, w- I was. It was that was a special. There was a special thing to be a part of. And you talk about sort of you know purpose. If we can go back to that moment, I lived a boyhood dream to be able to play soccer professionally in the A League in Australia, and and got my first chance at a club there called the Newcastle Jets just outside of Sydney and you know it was fantastic but ultimately over time that became a job like anything else but I was able to connect with the idea of playing for New Zealand and what that meant what that meant to my family and it became a whole nother thing and and we focused on the idea that we could go to the World Cup in 2010 and it hadn't happened for 28 years in New Zealand and we had a real chance to do that and we were able to pull that off and to be a part of that and qualify we actually beat Bahrain in my hometown in Wellington you can't really beat that. It was a pretty special sort of uh, journey. Do you ever, I'm sure you've had this question before anyway, but do you have a whole, you know, what was the best moment of your life? Could that possibly be beaten? I think it will. There was a sense of achievement, absolutely, to, to win. It really came down to one particular game, 90 minutes in, in Wellington to win that and to be able to go to the World Cup was special. And it was, after that, I knew that it wasn't going to get any better. I ended up getting injured and not getting on the field at the World Cup, but it almost in some ways didn't matter so much um, and I you know I retired and, and always wanted to come back to London to do graduate school so I was able to use that World Cup story in some ways to get into school to be able to start the next part of it so you'd absolutely hate to be the person applying amongst you do you know what I mean as in like oh I've done all these wonderful achievements I captained my country to the World Cup the uh it's pretty hard to beat that one yeah I, well technically speaking vice captain there was a guy called Ryan Nelson who was playing in the Premier League at the time who was the guy but um Maybe, although they accepted me into LSE, which was fantastic. And my, my father and my grandfather both, you know, worked on Fleet Street. So this had been the school to them, although they'd never gone to college themselves. So the idea of being able to come back here was, was very special personally. And, and I got in and then I got a, a letter from the school basically inviting me in two weeks early for like remedial economics and maths because I think they saw that I had been kicking a football around for a while and needed some brushing up on my skills. So it ended up being an enormously difficult transition, but uh, one I'm glad I did. So talk to us about funding. This is, you know, Allbirds being based in San Francisco. Obviously, you can't get a better opportunity, realistically, to nail the funding game. But I would imagine, uh, and this is all conjecture until you correct me, but I would imagine with your background and then going to LSE and being in London and then heading over to San Francisco, I mean, it doesn't necessarily translate that it would be such an easy ride in such a short period of time you've raised so much money. So how has that sort of personal development story unfolded? And can you take us through your funding journey, please? Well, the initial sort of seed capital was, I think, in some ways the hardest. And uh, I found in and Joey, a partner who had lived and worked in that world a little bit, and we were able to get some fantastic introductions, get in front of some really important people, and and one of them was a guy called Ben Lehrer, who runs uh, Lehrer Hippow, one of the 
probably a preeminent consumer investors in New York, and we we had a very short space of, of time with him, actually just before my bachelor party started, actually, randomly enough. And uh, we told our story. I think we had some nicks and scars. We had a product. We had a Kickstarter journey at that particular time. I think we had a partnership that had a complementary set of skills. And I, you know, I think uh, if I look through the eyes of Ben at the time, I think they saw this direct-to-consumer revolution happening and I think they were looking for something in, in footwear and we just happened to come along at the right time. So it's a mixture of good planning, hard work and a large dose of luck and an ability to tell our vision very succinctly about where we thought it might go. And of course, there was all sorts of uncertainty, but it happened quite quickly in the end. Uh, How many investors did you end up having to see in the first stage of funding? I was going back and forth between London and San Francisco working on my green card, and Joe was running around uh, San Francisco and New York meeting with everyone, and he took a lot of this on his back and did it in a way that is pretty remarkable. So I think he, I was so close to this at the time, and it was just something we were able to grind out, make happen, and uh, we raised a couple of million dollars. And where does a couple of million dollars get you for the audience that want to be inspired to do their own direct-to-consumer brands? Like a couple of million dollars. Do you remember what kind of targets? This is how many shoes we'll, we'll make and sell, anything like that? Well, at the time, it felt like an enormous amount of money, certainly from someone who'd spent a number of years self-funding this. And you know, with some support from Kickstarter, it felt enormous. But anyone who's ever raised any any money and on a business journey knows that that's the moment when you celebrate briefly and then you realize, gosh, there's a pressure of expectation and delivery now. And at the time, we raised that money to build a brand around the product, to build out a supply chain, to uh, refine the core material, the woolen material that was at the core of our product. So it was an enormous amount to do. It ended up being, oh my gosh, here we go. And we've really got to go. And this is the time to execute because we're going to get one crack at this. And, and we flew out to San Francisco. We started working from Joey's mother-in-law's house there with his dog, Walt. And we set a March 1st, 2016 deadline to launch what would become Allbirds. Joey had had a couple of kids at the time. He'd quit a really well-paying job in the biotech space to come and take a big risk. And it was a, there was enormous pressure on a couple of guys that I don't think knew each other very well at the time. And Not and what you necessarily to- told the VCs. <laughs> well, well, me and Joey, we go way back. Well, no, you know, it's interesting. As I look back on that process, and I, we, I, we were so honest, I think, about, look, this is what's happened. This is where we're at. This is the opportunity we see. And here's the things we don't know. And in some ways, I think it was our best friend. We've had that approach really from the beginning. And, um, you know, we went for it. So we hired, I think, I think we had four people we hired and prepared to launch this product, which at the time, you know, we didn't quite have a factory at that moment. There was so many sort of Where is your factory now? We ended up making the shoes in South Korea. Uh, Oh, I think it says so in the shoes, doesn't it? Yeah. The mass manufacturer of shoes, for anyone who hasn't read Shoe Dog, the Nike book, you totally should. It's a great, great read book. Unbelievable book. Yeah. So it sort of started in Japan, Korea, and then it sort of tracked low-wage labor away from those places, you know, all the way to other countries. But um, Korea was a place where we could go and find a high level of quality. We were going to pay more for it and it was going to be slightly offset by the free trade agreement between Korea and, and America and New Zealand. We were also going to find, I think, a partner where we, we would have a large amount of mind share rather than a small amount in a, in a large factory and maybe other countries we could have gone to and also someone that had empathy for our sustainability journey and, and the requisite standards that were kind of non-negotiables for us. And was this all organised before you did your Kickstarter even? No, at that this was really Joey and I getting together okay, we understand the product we want to make. We've proven in some ways product market fit and a vision for what we want to create. Let's go build a supply chain, not just for the first week of launch, but let's build a supply chain that imagines this business at scale 
And to Joey's enormous credit, and I think one of the things you take from being in San Francisco is whatever your vision is, go and make it bigger, make it larger, and plan for success from the beginning. And your Kickstarter, I'm just fascinated to, just to paint the exact picture of the journey of the milestones you've hit. So how many pairs of shoes did you sell on your Kickstarter? Because that is really probably the key metric you had to go into Lira Hippo and say, we're raising $2 million. And that, that's really like the starting injection point, isn't it? The fact that you've proven that you can do something yourself without anyone else's help. Yeah, I'd gone back for Christmas, back home to New Zealand and had been encouraged by a professor, if you could call it encouragement, who actually is still, I'm still close with, who sort of said, look, I don't think this is a good business. Uh, it's a bad category, but you should throw this out on Kickstarter um, so it can fail and then you know you can go get a real job. So I went home for Christmas, uh, I think it was a thousand bucks, shot a video on a sheep's friend farm in Pahatanui, just north of Wellington, uh, which I nearly, very nearly didn't do, but my brother encouraged me to go ahead and take a crack at it. Look, I came back to London, threw it online, you know, I had a thousand pairs of shoes to sell. That was all, all of the textile that sort of existed in the world. And it was a proprietary one that we'd made and didn't exist and couldn't get any more of it. And it sold out in four days. And we sold $120,000 from memory in a very short space of time. And I turned the campaign off because I had no ability to make any more. I remember just on the one hand being excited and on the other hand being incredibly nervous because I, you know, you now have to go kind of do this thing and it ended up being very, very difficult to do. And on the third hand, super excited to tell your professor about the results. Yeah, yeah. You'd earned your right to be smug at that moment. You know, there's, there's something along the way that you meet these little moments and the irony is he's become a great friend and he did me a huge favour there at the time. I didn't feel like that. But you have these little moments where people basically, and if, quite honestly, it doesn't matter what the idea is, if you don't have a few of these moments where someone who's extremely knowledgeable, far more knowledgeable than you, than the category that you're about to enter, tells you it's a bad idea, then you, you probably, the idea's not good enough. And there's two or three that are burned in my memory that can go two ways. You can kind of agree with them or you can kind of go, actually, I'm going to go prove you wrong. And fortunately, you know, we were able to do the latter. And it's that desire to prove people wrong, actually, that's quite often the burning passion that lights a fire under someone to just go all out, right? I mean, that's technically what took you to New York, San Francisco, go large or go home. Yeah, I mean, I think about the professor. I think about, you know, some early investor conversations. I think about someone very, very notable within the footwear industry and then someone within a very reputable and famous wool brand who all said this won't work. I think it's, a, it's an interesting one. One of my kind of lessons from this journey, and, and there's been many, but uh, I think oftentimes you talk about listening to feedback all the time, and I, we do even in the context of our business, but it's less often talked about the ability to ignore feedback and to go do what you want to do just because you want to do it. And you don't want to do that every day because it's not a good way to live, but having the courage to do it at times is very, very important. I read a, a great quote the other day, which was, uh, courage is not the absence of fear, it's the presence of fear and being able to act on it anyway. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. And entrepreneurship is not about taking crazy risks and mortgaging your house. I don't think, although for some people it has been, I think it's about being able to do a couple of things really, really well and having a kind of constant fear that what you're doing is not good enough so you continue to improve and, and have the courage to keep on going. So, you know, I just want to hone in on this part of the conversation. So a lot of the reality of what makes a good entrepreneur is basically that bounce back ability, that resilience, that ability to sort of accept the dark moments and find a way to convince yourself that it's going to be turned around at some point rather than just give up. What would be really helpful for listeners is to know that 
even the fastest ever direct-to-consumer brand to reach surpass a billion-dollar valuation has had its super dark moments in a very short period of time. So this is me assuming that you have and hoping that you're human. You might well not be human. I appreciate, obviously, you're from New Zealand and they don't breed humans. They breed really super tough motherfuckers and you might be one of them. However, you did live in England for a bit. So there is a good possibility there's a soft center somewhere. This was a bad idea for a long time before it was a good one. And well, when, um, when did you, when did the idea come about? What year was that? Probably 2008, 2009. Okay, so it's one of those overnight successes exactly. that's taken 10 years in the making. And likewise for my football career, you know, there was a long time where that was out of contract and I came out of England and got released by Swansea and Bristol on trial and felt like there was no way to, to sort of do it. And you, you have moments where you can kind of keep on going or you can quit and it's a little bit me. It's just that competitiveness is there and it has been for whatever reason, but it's also a lot about family and friends and people that just sort of say, hey, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Keep on going. So you go around that next bend and then just uh, it's darkest just before the dawn and just when you think it doesn't, then all of a sudden everyone wants to be a friend. So that's happened. I've, I've seen that arc twice now and I've been fortunate to sort of come out, come out the other side on, on, on both of them. On that, that one, I remember ringing my, my dad from a, a phone box in Wales just after I'd been on trial at Swansea that we're in kind of one of the lower leagues at the time, League One or maybe even League Two. Was everyone at home like, Jesus, you've gone from New Zealand to Wales, why don't you just stay here? Well, it was raining and of course, you know, the Antipodes, it was the summer and it was the barbecue and it was sunny and warm and uh, my old man picked up the phone and and I uh, sort of said, Dad, it's not working out. I don't, and I sort of said, oh, it's hard. And he goes, yeah, I know it's hard. Don't call me if you want permission to quit what you're doing is kind of your thing and if you want to keep going, great. If you don't want to stop, that's great too. This is your thing and it was actually sort of one of those moments where you sort of freeze yourself or that it's okay to sort of stop this and then it freed you to kind of go and have another go. And yeah, you are the master of your own choices. Yeah, which is I think really, really important because I think when anyone, anyone who starts a business, you get so wrapped up in this and you start to lose sight of where the business uh, stops and where you begin and the two things become one and the same and that's both, I think, necessary. I don't think there's any other way to do it and also really dangerous. And so the idea that you can walk away at any time and whatever happens, you'll be better for it is something that's very, very hard to see and maybe giving my dad a little bit more credit than he deserves, but I think that's what he was getting at. Starting a business is the hardest thing, I think, one of the hardest things you could ever do. And often a terrible idea. Often a terrible idea and that's what makes it good. But also, you know, as we've gone, gone through this journey, I speak with lots of different people and, and most people don't start. They talk about it and then they don't. And that's fine too. But I just think for anyone that has started, well done you, because it's, you know, as you know too, it's this incredibly difficult thing to do. So just on the basis of, you know, the stats, sadly, it was World Mental Health Day recently. And, um, you know, there was a stat that over a billion people have registered with uh, mental illness to some degree that goes from anxiety all the way up to depression. And more, of course, entrepreneurship can be an extremely lonely journey and an extremely stressful time. Have there been moments where you just reflected and you're like, why on earth am I doing this? And who has been there, you know, aside from your family, obviously, who's been there to sort of lift you up around that? Because I think support networks are really the key to success. I've come, I mean, obviously sport as well, you know, and I think that's starting to reveal itself too. As an, oh, the American football stuff is really sad. Yeah. And, but even within football in the UK, I, I mean, I, you know, the, the mental demands of performance and the scrutiny and the need to always be performing. I mean, it was difficult, really, really difficult. And I think it toughened me up in a way that was great preparation for the entrepreneurial sort of journey because it's very, very similar. 
but I'm very, very fortunate to be able to do that with a co-founder. And I think in the early days when I was doing it by myself, I, I was one that wasn't good <laughs> for anyone, but also the ability to have someone to kind of go through that journey with who, you know, isn't your partner or your family who, who you can step away and just kind of laugh at the whole thing because it's important to laugh just as much as you cry because it doesn't matter whether you're having success or whether, whether you're having, you know, the opposite. It is hard. It is just really, really hard. So I, I think that anyone who's doing it needs to be very, very careful. They need to take care of themselves. And a small plug here for myself, but a recommendation for you. But I actually did a TED talk on laughter builds resilience. Yeah. And um, it's a key insight that I've, I learned over a couple of years of researching the field of gelatology, which is the study of laughter. And it's an amazing tool. Um, if you can learn to laugh at your most stressed moments, what it actually does to your chemistry inside your body to change the way that you react to stress. So it's a good life hack. So something uh, sounds like you already live by those values, which is great. I think I, I was taught that in, in some ways by Joe recently, because I think he's fast to laugh, but certainly in a, in a football locker room, the ability to sort of to never get too high or never too low. And that, that's a good place to be taught that skill. And it's an important one. And talking of never getting high on your own supply, do you wear anyone else's shoes ever? Oh, you can't. It's one of the things they don't tell you about starting a shoe brand is you better make something good because you have to wear it every single day. So we're just starting to wrap up now. I uh, just want to check any plans for a football shoe on the horizon? No, the short answer is no. Do you get asked that all the time? No, I don't. But I'd uh, love a pair of those. They're the most uncomfortable shoes you can wear. Never say never. Who knows? Absolutely. Who knows where, how it plays well, out? I would back you to do that. From your best experience possible, footwear and football. Um, who is your inspiration? Is Phil Knight an inspiration? Look, I enjoyed that book. That wouldn't be the first name that springs to mind, although you know what he's built is pretty remarkable. I did a, a thing once in football where it asked us three people you'd like to meet. One was Roy Keane. And I managed to do that. Was oh, pretty, really? I managed to meet him, which was amazing. Really, really cool. When, when was that? He was down there observing the All Blacks. I think he was doing his sort of like coaching badges and you have to spend time with another professional team. So he went into camp with the All Blacks. And uh, God, that's so cool. And I, I met him on the street. <laughs> He's actually harder than the All Blacks, one of the only people. He was with, he was with the All Whites coach, the New Zealand coach at the time, and I bumped into him literally on the street. And he goes, I'd like to introduce you to Roy. And I shook his hand. And as I was shaking his hand, a couple of guys in the cafe got up and they started going, Kino, Kino. And uh, he just sort of, still holding my hand, icy stare at these guys and they just sat down and went back to their coffee and then he said, he went back, finished the handshake and said, nice to meet you and then moved on. I was like, oh my gosh, that was unbelievable. He is so cool. And the other two were, were Michael Beirut, who's a graphic designer, who was a sort of a little hero growing up, who's a partner at Pentagram, who I briefly met once. And then Tim Brown, my namesake, who was one of the, uh, not the wide receiver for the, the NFL team, but one of the CEO and founder of IDEO, yep. who's actually in San Francisco and someone that I've got to meet who's just a remarkable guy. So um, there you go. There's three sort of random uh, heroes of mine. That's an amazing one to have your namesake as your own uh, ideal me. You get to wake up every day, look in the mirror and be like, job done. He's just a really, really special guy. And I've, I've had the good fortune of spending some time with him and uh, it's been pretty neat. So it's interesting. And I guess also completely logical that two of your heroes are, you know, Pentagram and Ideo. So like very design led and that would, that basically speaks volumes about the shoes and the e-commerce experience as well. I think so. I mean, what's been so interesting about Tim Brown and really the IDEO story, they blazed the trail between the intersection of sort of design and business. And that's always been sort of my real area of interest and about taking the design process and applying it to problems just beyond sort of creating things. And, you know, I think we've tried to at Allbirds, for better or worse, think about every little detail. Not so we get them all right, but that level of thoughtfulness is probably one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of about the brand. 
Okay, so Tim, we're coming to the end of the episode, sadly, because we could stay and talk, but you have a store to open and customers to go and spellbindingly wow with your amazing products. So what is the best piece of advice you have for any entrepreneurs looking to start up? And what is the best advice you've been given by someone else along your journey? I mean, aside from the stuff that we've touched on, I mean, and really just the courage to go start something. I mean, I, I think about the Kickstarter thing. I mean, that might have been an idea that stayed in my head forever if it hadn't been sort of taking it to market. And I think the sooner you can get to the moment where someone takes out their wallet, someone who you don't know, who's not your auntie, and uh, gives some of that money uh, to you for the product or service you you know you're making, the better you'll be. I you know I think one of the things we've learned along the way is that I was probably running around London here with a thousand things that we wanted the business and the brand to do, and over time, ironically, as we've we've got more successful, that's become more focused. And I think one of the things we've done really well is say no to ninety seven percent of the opportunities, the meetings, the different people we could work with to focus on the idea that we could do one or two things and be the best in the world at those two things, that focus is your friend, I think, when you're building a business and when you're building a brand. But the natural tendency is to talk about the 27 things that are great about your product and the courage to just do one. And to succeed or fail with that, I think, is important. And we launched with one shoe, and that has worked out well for us. But if it had gone badly, there was no backup plan. And the courage to sort of follow through with our convictions and have a point of view and not dilute that by making everyone happy and finding consensus, I think has probably been the thing I'm most proud of on this journey. Thank you so much, Tim, for your time. It's been great. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Next week on Secret Leaders. To be a hero, you have to take long odds at an extraordinary outcome. Or, hey, my company is not doing what it should be for its customers. I need to start a company that does a better job for its customers. That was Tim Draper, the world's most famous venture capital investor who's backed many companies like Hotmail, Twitter, Tesla, and pretty much most of the companies you've ever heard of. And I have to say, he is a ridiculously nice and charming man. It might be all that Bitcoin he owns. After all, he's one of the world's richest Bitcoin billionaires. Anyway, he's full of amazing advice and a voice like chocolate silk, which if it did exist, he could afford to buy. Anyway, tune in or you'll miss out. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by your host, that's me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and if you've heard this, it'll probably have something to do with Jennifer Osman in Canada. You'll also notice throughout this series, we've got some beautiful illustrations made for every episode, and that's all thanks to Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming Secret Leaders live events on secretleaders.com. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on whatever media player you use. Just follow us at Secret Leaders on Instagram or at Secret Leaders 1 on Twitter. 
and tell just one friend about how freaking awesome this episode is. If you want to go the extra mile, I'm at Dan Murray Serta on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and we'd love to see you take some screenshots of the episode you're listening to and share it across your social media. It'll bring a tear to our eye and joy to our hearts. See you next week. Tune in or you'll miss out.